You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Hi, guys. Welcome back. This is Dr. Alonso Osorio with OsorioMD.com. Ready to take on the next 50 more plus episodes. This is episode number 51. And remember... Go back in our library, keep downloading. To keep you up to date, we have been now successful at having almost 18,000 downloads. And despite the fact that to many of you, that much not seem to be a lot when compared to some extremely successful podcasts that can get as many as millions per download per episode, a little guy like me that started almost 11 months ago on this endeavor, I think having accomplished 18 downloads means that I've been almost close to fill a stadium with potential listeners on a message that I never thought it was going to resonate and touch so many people across the world. Now, by reaching about 60 countries across the world, I am extremely proud to notify that with 18,000 downloads, Every episode gets downloaded more and more. So that's super exciting for, for a guy like me that is doing just for this for the purpose of helping you. And with my experience, I think there is nothing better than communicate the process that I have gone through. And to make you not to suffer through the same path that I've been to and make life easier for you. So just remember... Go back to episode number one. Back then, the quality of the recording, the sound was not as good. I didn't feel as spontaneous as I am right now. I've gotten more confident. I think uh, things are flowing more spontaneously, and I'm really, really happy to be here again with episode 51. And this one is about the Experiential Series Podcast Part Number 3. And this one is all about credentialing, relicensing, verification of credentials, etc. And that's why I told you earlier in a couple of episodes heading back that I want you to keep log and a good database of all the documents and certifications that you have gotten from day number zero when this journey of coming into America started. By having said that, I just want you to save every single document in a computer database that is reliable has a cloud backup and has some paper format and some sort of folders that you keep in uh, the office at home, at your local 
home library where you keep all your documentations for medical education, relicensing, recertification, because this is going to be crucial. There is nothing more painful, guys. I've been here in this country for 20 plus years. Every two years, you're going to need to be doing some sort of recredentialing. Sometimes it happens like every year, sometimes even more, depending on how you overlap on the cycles of recredentialing, depending on how many board certifications you have. If you have a single, dual, triple, fourth ball certification, like so many people have, you know, you're going to need to be providing and supplementing documents to support your relicensing, recredentialing, and ongoing certification. So I decided to do this one on CME and recredential because right now, as we speak, I have to take my American Board of Emergency Medicine concert recertification examination on my second taking. That means that I've been in practice more for more than 11 years just in emergency medicine. I already completed Three years ago, my recertification for the second time in family medicine. And, you know, as you can see, there is some overlap. And things have changed, have changed drastically since everything started. Back in the days, every 10 years, you just kind of studied and you sat for the boards. You paid a huge licensing fee for the recertification. And that's all it took. Now the, the boards of specialties in emergency medicine in, in, across the United States have become much smarter. And they want to have a constant fee application that you will be charged on quarterly basis and almost yearly basis as you escalate through the 10 years. So they will give you quarterly CME, quarter, quarterly lifelong self-assessment study booklets you know it's going to be called differently on every specialty but in family medicine is different than in emergency medicine for a specific case for the american college of physicians for internists might be completely different for the ent the surgeons by the american college of surgeons by the american college of cardiologists by american academy of pediatrics it might be very different but in one way or, an, or another the boards get together and they realize hey Instead of charging a fee every 10 years, let's have an ongoing uh, stream of income yearly in which we charge this doctor a hefty amount of money to get recredential. And, and that's what's very interesting. As I'm studying for this, and I just paid a huge, huge fee for my review course. It's like $1,150 for the digital bundle and, you know, some PDF documents that I have. I have to go through over 40 hours of CME lectures before the 22nd. So many of my time I have dedicated to sit down and review and repeat the most important concepts that I'm going to be asked. Now, let's get a little specific. This year is going to be really different, you know, because of the pandemic. We're doing the board testing from home. And I took advantage. I took, I'm taking it early because it's an open book test and they're allowing you to do so. But despite the fact that it's an open book test, it's still timed and I will have to literally, you know, pace myself to answer the questions appropriately. So before the 22nd, I'll be taking this 230 question board recertification exam that I need for my ongoing practicing of emergency medicine. As you guys know, probably by now, you know, guys that I'm double boarded in family medicine and emergency medicine, I did two residency trainings, one in family practice, and then another one in family in emergency medicine. 
Each one of them was three years and each specialty requires something different from you. And every board is different, as I said earlier, and you don't only have to have CME requirements, you also have some quality improvement modules and some uh, clinical improvement modules. And some of those uh, are ongoing projects that you will have to have in your practice on how you improve the patient experience and so forth. So just just going to your, I know for the, for many of you this is not even available right now. But down down the down the line as you become more specialized, so you know what to expect. Also, they obviously expect you to have at least 150 CME credits per cycle. Remember, test taking is very expensive in the United States, so just be ready for that. Many of you will get what is called a continuous medical education funding or expenses account that is given to you by your employer. But if you're self-employed, that will come out of your pocket. But as I said, it's somewhere between $3,000 and $5,000. And you have to be very wise on how you spend that money. Well, getting deeper into this. It's important to stay up to date because if you don't stay up to date, sometimes your clinical practice could get suspended if not keeping and staying up to date with your CME. What is CME? Continuous medical education is crucial in the United States. In my personal experience in Colombia, for example, as I graduated from medical school and I obtained my diploma, there was no really an ongoing certification or relicensing process in which I was asked for educational requirements of a specialty-specific performance. So it is not very unusual to see your pediatrician, general physician, cardiologist that has not had any sort of advanced training or ongoing recertification in Colombia, and they stay with their old concepts that they learned during residency and medical school for those 20 years. That's different in the United States and might be different in many of your countries, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Australia, etc. But in the U.S., they ask you to stay recertified and current in your specialty. And there is minimal requirements. Obviously, there is no limit on how much you can do for you, for yourself, for others. You know, you can be an attending physician in a very nice highly regarded residency education program, which is part of you to stay up to date in the most up-to-date research and trends, etc. But for us, the regular private practice attendings, it is crucial to stay and keep up to date. So that was a significant change for me as I moved to Colombia because uh, there was nothing that made me stay recertified or to take credentials. Uh, in Colombia, you just go and attend uh, local seminars and courses and so forth that, you know, are available to your national societies, but they are not mandatory. And some people didn't get any ongoing education. So CME is ongoing medical education that most of the time is a specialty specific, but there is also a state licensing requirements that are demanded from you to stay up to date. Who provides the CME? The CME is uh, provided by national institutions, organizations, private non-for-profit or private for-profit or 
CME organizations that are sponsored by third parties that might have biased or unbiased information that give you free credits. Some of those credits are free. Some of the credits are also at a cost. I would say high-quality CME most of the times come with a cost or comes to you if you have a professional association with a large medical association, let's say the American Medical Association, or your local state chapter, your county chapter, your national chapter of your specialty, they will offer to you free CME, like the Florida Medical Association or the Florida College of Emergency Physicians for me, or when I was in Texas, the uh, Bear County Medical Society in San Antonio or the Texas Medical Board or the Texas College of Emergency Physicians and even at the national level, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine or the Florida College of Emergency Physicians or the American Academy of Family Physicians or the American Board of Family Medicine, etc. Many, many sources. I would say hundreds and hundreds of sources. And as I said, there is private institutions, there is for profit, non for profit, but most of the credits come with a cost if you ha need good quality stuff. There is some topics lately, and these are always ever evolving and changing, but from the state perspective for relicensing, every two years you have to have, and these are the hot topics right now that I, I've been dealing with, is safe op opiate prescribing, number one, safe opiate prescribing, HIV, AIDS domestic violence, medical errors, human trafficking, and wellness and physician burnout. Those are some topics that they decided that they think they're important. Some of these topics are only valid in one state. Some other are not in another. There is some overlap about the concepts that they want to check on you. But I tell you, sex trafficking is a hot topic. Prevention of medical errors is a big one, and opiate prescribing is a huge one because in America, the epidemic on opiate prescribing is huge. It's huge. The addiction, the opiate diversion, the opiate addiction, it is dramatic, and you guys are going to see it. It's sometimes overwhelmingly common, and it is a real societal problem, especially during the pandemic. I think drug abuse and pandemic just went off the hook. Um, I'm digressing here, but uh, in general, as I told you earlier, you must keep a reliable database. Many of your personal individual societies have a fantastic database. In my case, since I got to this country and I started my residency program, I have been using the American Academy of Family Physicians in which I do my CME reporting through them. I simply take my CME credits from whoever is offering them. I fill the CME report uh, form and I fill the requirements. I put the amount of credits, the certifying institution that offered the credits, and I put that in an envelope. I put a little stamp and I address it to that address and the Academy of Family Physicians have kept records of my credits since 2003, and I think I have accomplished like 3,000 plus credits. I'm like obsessive about it, and it's been really helpful because when they ask for the transcript, I simply go to their website, I request CME transcript, I transform that into a PDF document, and boom, easy, one step, 
everything is there summarized and it classifies the CME if it was in person or online, etc. And it gives different um, scores uh, depending to the quality of the AMA class one continuous medical education. There is a there is a, this is all regulated by large institutions. The American Medical Association actually is the one that kind of tells you what kind of CME you gather. And all of these CME certifying authorities have to have an ongoing board of trustees that actually make sure that the type of education that is being provided is good. One thing that is interesting is, for example, Florida has CE Concierge. And CE Concierge is Continuous Education Concierge. And I pay a fee of, I think, $99, $99. And they do all the reporting to the Florida Medical Board. And I'm due this December to renew my Florida license. And they have dutifully uh, sent all my CME and my required CME on domestic violence, on opiate prescribing, on human trafficking, and HIV AIDS. They have sent that. And that's all taken care of, so I don't have to worry about it. But otherwise, you will have to go on and report that yourself. I mean, $99. They make it easy. They're on top of your stuff. They merge the accounts from the American Academy of Family Practice and they do it. I also have another account through the American College of Emergency Physicians that I use to log some of the emergency medicine specific stuff. And I do it there, but uh, somehow I do it redundantly through the American Academy of Family Medicine because it's more a generalized society that allows me to take knowledge, more broad-based knowledge. As a family physician, you're more of a generalist. So they allow me to use my emergency medicine education in there. I'm also having ongoing course certification right now through the College of the American Academy of Physician Leaders to get my uh, certification as a chief physician executive. And um, maybe I'll do the master's track that it might take a little longer. It's quite expensive, but I'm putting also those credits through there and they're all valid. So I do a lot of that, and I'm really anal about keeping track of all that. Well, there is a mandatory CME. We have spoken about that. There is other credits that sometimes they're required to get licensed, and it varies from one state to the other. For example, some states like Florida, in this case that I'm practicing in Florida. In Florida, you must report these credits. They verify them, and they check every physician to make sure they have it. The state of California, where I have another license, wants you to certify and at the state that you actually took the credit. And not necessarily you need to send proof of the credit, but they do random audits. And if you don't have the credit, then you're in big trouble. And then your licensing will get revoked and you might as well just make sure you do your due diligence to get all that up to date and taken care of. Now, there is some CME needed for hospital recredentialing, um, and BLS, ACLS, and PALS give you some sort of CME credit, but there are mandatory courses that you must have to be able to get credentialing. So the basic life support, the advanced cardiac life support, and the pediatric advanced life support is required for most of us emergency physicians. And most of you guys, generalists and internists, have to have BLS, ACLS. And in my personal case that I'm an emergency physician, I have to have ATLS, the Advanced Tra Trauma Life Support. And some fa family physicians have some sort of kind of 
gynecologic obstetric CLS. He's, uh, in, he's supported by the American College of Obstetric and Gynecologists and the American Academy of Family Physicians on how to have safe delivery of a mother in birth and labor, etc. But I don't keep that up to date because I'm not delivering children unless I deliver children emergently and expeditiously in the emergency department. They just come and ju- they just pop the baby right there in front of me. So, got him back to credentialing. Credentialing differs state by state, hospital to hospital, and system by system. And despite the fact that I have worked probably in 15 different hospitals across the United States, and I have been credentialed in many sites, sometimes this becomes really redundant. As I said, I recently changed jobs, and I was ready for my recertification with my prior employer. And as I am applying for my current job, it took 90 days, by the way, 90 days to get credential within the new hospital system. It became redundant because despite the fact that this hospital A had everything on file, everything that they knew about me, hospital B, my new employer, requests all the same information and they want to do it themselves. And they have their own credential and staff and they have their own people. And everything has to happen again. And it is so painful. That's why I'm telling you guys. So you don't waste time. Have everything handy and organized. Thank God my wife is uh, an organization, a strict person, and she has kept everything up to date. And sometimes it's really easy. I just go and pull it or I know where to find it. And for the most part, everything, it is there. So I have my BLS, my ACLS, my PALS, my ATLS. It's easy to be to be found. As you get credential, you're going to be asked some questions in credential. There's going to be some self-disclosure information that I would advise you to be really careful when what you write and any of these things that you answer yes is going to put you in trouble for credentialing and, and you need to be honest I'm not saying be unprofessional but just be careful there is a screening process so that are mandated by the Center for Medicare Services and some uh, boards and, and credential institutions that is a screening on drugs of abuse drug dependence alcoholism prior rehabilitation ongoing rehab ongoing drug problems Traffic accidents, tickets, speeding tickets, citations, child abuse problems, child neglect, uh, domestic violence. Uh, Had your license revoked? Have you ever been investigated by peer committees? Have you ever had any problems in credentialing within the hospital? Has ever the DA, the CMS or Medicaid revoke your billing capacity and all these things? Believe me everything, everything is there. And if you answer to yes on any of them, then you have to explain yourself, specifically for lawsuits. And in the next chapter, I'm going to speak more about lawsuits. But in this case, I'm talking about lawsuits. You have to explain why it happened, what's the number of the case, uh, do you have malpractice insurance, what kind of malpractice insurance you have, do you have uh, a policy that has tail or no tail, and we can go on deep... uh, explanation later on but in general every little thing will be explained there and they even request self-inquiry on the national physicians database it's an institution that for like four dollars they go and check for lawsuits under your npi and dea across the nation and you know uh, it is as good as the day of let's say today 11 12 of 2020 it's as good as today but they pretty much look for any ongoing lawsuits that you have had, uh, that you're having, or if you were recently filed 
a lawsuit, it will be all documented there. Now, in the U.S., the largest insurer or insurance company is not really an insurance company, but government benefits insurance is Medicaid, Medicare. And the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services called CMS, you all guys will find soon about it. Most hospitals contract with them. And the hospital also wants to make sure that when you sign these legal documents, you guys, boy, you better don't be in trouble. You don't want to have any allegations of federal fraud against the certain Center for Medicaid or Medicare services. These are the largest institutions that provide uh, pay for healthcare in America through the government. And 99 to 100% of the hospitals receive Medicaid and Medicare payments. So you must and they must abide by their rules. And by abiding by those rules, you will be contracting with them. So your company, your group, your hospital can bill on your behalf for money for the services that you have provided. So you better get your shit straight and be really careful because those are federal government attestation. And gentlemen, if you mess with the government, with the federal government and their money, you will be going to jail and have a beautiful orange jumpsuit. So be careful with that. I already spoke about the fact that you need to have a good database with uh, iCloud uh, backup, backup, some cloud services. As I said earlier, many specialties have uh, CME specific. In my case, as an emergency physician, I have to have uh, a stroke, myocardial infarction, and disaster management specific CME requirements, especially if you're a medical director or not. And um, some of these CME could be really expensive. Most institutions, if you really deep down inside, have a CME department and they will be very kind to let you know if they have the CME courses available for free that they're already kind of included in the perks and benefits that you have. So don't go just paying for CME if you don't have to. You're going to give get pamphlets on the mail on monthly basis of CME places where, where, where you can take CME. Now, how can you spend your CME money? Pretty much you can spend it on anything. My current employer allows me to use it on scrubs, on stethoscopes, a certain percentage of your computer, your cell phone bill, an iPhone device, you know, a cell phone in general. You know, they pay for your licensing process, your board certification, but you run out of funds. It's up to 4000 I think, for me. So they, they can pay for your DEA, for your state drug licensing stuff, for your board certification and licensing, etc. But you have a cap. So remember, it's $5,000. And some of those fees will be covered under CME. Some of them will are just a commitment that the employ, employer made to you to pay them for you. So just check with your employer and they will go on to the specifics on how to do that. Another topic, every board demands certain amount of live CME. This is before the pandemic. For example, the American Academy of Family Medicine mandated that I attended a course live anywhere in the nation where they wanted their national conference to happen, let's say Orlando. And you go there, they offer about 30 plus credits over a five-day period, and they just want you to attend and make sure you had some sort of live CME requirement. Uh, the American College of Emergency Physicians is pretty much the same. They really want you to 
to go at year at least yearly or bi biannually to their national board meeting and just be present to interact and network with your uh, peers and partners and clinicians alike to see what's trending and what's happening in your specialty. And I'm going to tell you through this, one of the most enriching moments of every year that I look forward to. And it's fun. It's a lot of partying, a lot of drinking, a lot of eating. You get to spend time with people, the people that you train with. It's just fun, good, good, good CME. And why not? You can take take your wife. There is also some, some I call it destination CME. And there is these companies that are like, they offer CME, but they take you to fantastic, fantastic destination. Let's say Hawaii. And the course is expensive. Obviously, you pay like $1,900 for the CME subscription. But they give you specially discounted rates on the hotel. So the hotel, you put it on the CME for you, but your family stays with you. So they benefit. You will have to your to pay for your family tickets. But these CME destinations is a fantastic way to get great quality CME. And believe me, despite the fact that they're destination CME, sometimes there is very good topics, very good speakers. So I highly recommend to do one of those because it's really, really, really fun. And my wife and the kids really have enjoyed those. Also, if you belong to the American Medical Association or other specialty-specific associations, they offer some CME that are free of cost due to the membership. And just as I said earlier, be in the lookout for those because there are perks that you don't even realize you had and you don't have to go paying for that stuff if you're getting it for free for other stuff that you already have paid for. Let's talk about licensing. There is some states that are really pain in the butt to get licensed on. For example, California, Texas, and Florida. Literally, guys, it's like going through the immigration department. They do fingerprinting. The only thing that they're missing is retina scanning, and I think they're getting into that. And they treat physicians. They want to have a super regulated, super, super uh, trackable. They want to know where you practice. Once you're here in the United States for five years or so, do, do a Google search on you, put your name, Alonso Osorio MD, and you'll be surprised if dozens, if not hundreds, of mentioning and, you know, websites that review review you and so forth, and where you've been, and where you license, and what kind of specialty you have, what people think about you, if you have any criminal actions, etc. Anything is, everything is found on the internet these days, kind of scary. So as I said, some states are really difficult to get licensed. Texas is one of them. Texas has the Texas Jurisprudence Exam that is specifically Texas law on medical jurisprudence, and that's a really painful test. And when I took it, I had to read like a 150-page long document on medical jurisprudence, and that was really hard to swallow. And that's a different test that you have to take that it was expensive, but then but just credential, it could take from six months up to a year, depending on your country of origin, the licensing requirements, the investigations, and how easy and quick other institutions will submit and facilitate those documents for them for the state of Texas to get your credential. Some states are easy, like the state of Iowa. I remember that I only required one year of postgraduate training in family medicine to be able to obtain a license in practice in the, in the state of Iowa, but that's, that was back in 2004. And I think they do that with the purpose of promoting, promoting decisions to work in underserved America in rural areas like I had to to serve and, and I'm really proud of having done that. 
If licensed in multiple states, remember that it could become really expensive. Licensing, I would say, will vary. A state license might cost you somewhere in between $450 to $1,000. Just the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, to prescribe opiates, I think it's around $735 every two years, and you have to pay for that. Some states like Texas, they have the Texas prescribing license that has an independent license. It's a small fee, like $75, but they collect on that. We talk about the National Practitioner or Data Bank uh, sell queries. That's rather cheap. And another thing that I want you to keep up to date is the vaccinations. Guys, that's so painful. But keep your vaccination somewhere. Go and dig deep. Hey, mom. Mom, do you have my childhood vaccinations? I need them. In the United States, they want to know if I had my MMR, my 123 series, if I had a Tdap shot at the age of 11, if I had a Tdap shot before I joined college, if I had a every 10 years Tdap booster. They want to know if I have a yearly PPD, if the PPD was positive. Was was it a one-step PPD, a two-step PPD? Was it followed by a chest X-ray, etc.? They also might ask for a urine drug screening when before you get employed. They want to make sure you don't do drugs. Uh, that's a whole nother topic. What else? Oh, the yearly flu shot. You must have the flu shot, or you have to wear a mask throughout the season from September through March. By hospital demands if you decline the flu shot because you're, quote, allergic, unquote. But right now, everybody's wearing a mask. Everybody's wearing a mask. But in general, everybody must have a flu shot. And as I said, it's just important to stay up to date. And whatever shot you get, you need to save, make a copy, and, and just have everything really handy. Well, before we say goodbye, in general, these are the type of things that kind of crossed my mind and I was checking the boxes when it comes to credentialing in the United States. They do, one, a background check. Two, a urine drug screening. Three, they want to check your driver's license. Four, they want to check your passport. Five, they want to check your social security. Six, they want to check your resume and your curriculum vitae. Seven, continuous medical education transcript. Eight, state and hospital specific documentations that are these forms that you have to fill that are repetitive but are necessary vaccinations we have just spoken about it number nine vaccinations 10 peer reference letters what that means a peer reference letter is another colleague that has worked with you closely for the last year or so has to submit an affidavit that you're actually reliable trustworthy physician or not they can screw you up so just be really careful on how you treat your peers and colleagues and believe it or not nowadays they don't even send this to to your colleagues they send them to your charge nurses and they even call i have seen recruiters and credentialing people calling the emergency department asking for your proceedings and your behavior while working and relating with other staff so be really really careful you have to have all your courses up to date bls acls pulse and atls uh, 13. Loss of disclosure. You need to disclose everything regarding any ongoing losses or if you haven't had any. Any ongoing board or private or government related investigations for fraud or Medicare cancellation of contract contracting benefits. We said already 15. The National Practitioner Data Bank Cell Query. 16. The National 
provided identification number that you have to have. 17, the Drug Enforcement Administration license. 18, the state licensings, uh, medical licensings. 20, prior hospital privileges. They want to know every hospital where you have worked, the location, the address, the phone number, the type of privileges from one day to one day, and why you were terminated, or did you resign, did you relinquish your privileges, etc. So keep up to date on that. They also want your procedure locks, meaning the amount of central lines, intubations, fracture reductions, procedural sedations, whatever you do in your specialty, like cardiology, PCIs, stenting, you name it, uh, counterpulsation, balloon insertion, etc. Whatever it is for you as a surgeon, a cholecystectomy, appendectomies, thoracotomies, exploratory laparotomies, as a gynecologist, C-sections, vaginal deliveries, tubal ligations, circumcisions, you name it. They want to know that. That's what's called procedure locks. They also want a list of the number of visits and encounters that you have had in every hospital because they want to know that you're a practicing physician. They also want to know explanation of training and any employment or educational gaps in your life. And at the very end, there is legal disclosure, as I said, about crimes, child support, traffic issues. Please don't drink and drive. If you get a ticket and you're driving drunk, dude, you're going to jail and you're getting an attorney, it's going to be really expensive, it's going to be reported to the board, and you might lose your the license, and you might be sent to the state board rehabilitation program, and you will be have to pin on a cup and getting drug and alcohol tested for years. So don't do that. They also want to know if you have prior psychiatric or drug counseling. In general, some of these are mandatory requirements. My advice, guys, is try to keep a clean life. A clean life will lead to a clean license. If you have a clean license, you will have a job whatever you want. Or you will be relegated to poor job choices in very poor selection places and will be a self-selection process that the only one responsible for your actions, it is you. No one but you. Well, guys, we came to the end of episode 51. If I miss something, please let me know. I know this is a lot. It's a little advanced, but this is something that you guys can look up to, expect in the years to come, what it's like to practice medicine in the United States. Remember, it's not only being a doctor. It's all it takes to be a doctor. Keep it straight. Keep it professional. Keep it ethical. And remember... Life in America is amazing, but sure is regulated as hell. Again, stay in touch. Leave me feedback. Go to iTunes or whatever you like to leave me feedback on. And I'm here to counsel, advise, and be your mentor. Remember, OsorioMD.com is here for you guys. God bless you, and thanks for listening. Stay in touch.